0: Welcome to Rank and File Radio, I'm your host Doug Nesbitt. In this episode we're speaking with Dan Dara about the Newfoundland Grocery Strike of 2020 and how grocery jobs went from good to bad in the 1980s and 1990s. During the Newfoundland Strike, Dan published two articles on this very subject at Canadian Dimension with a little help from myself. We'll provide links to the articles in the show notes, And just before we get started, I want to welcome new listeners, as well as longtime listeners of Rank and File Radio Prairies Edition, which Emily Liedem hosted. Emily has handed the reins over to me, and we're expanding the show's coverage beyond just the prairies. If you want to support what we do at rankandfile.ca, please visit the website where you can make a single or monthly donation. Uh, We've also got a funding request letter that you can download for your local union or labor council to keep our independent labor news and analysis going. So let's get on with the show. All right, so today we're doing a dive into Groceries' Long War. Uh, we have Dan Dara on the show. Did I pronounce that right?
1: Yep, you got Dan, it. Dan Dara. Okay, cool, nice man. Thanks
0: uh, thanks for coming on, and
1: it's been a long time coming. It has, yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, I've been I've been following rank and file at CA since, I guess, around... 2015 when i was like uh when i was 20 and it has taught me a lot so it's cool to appear on on the show that uh that started it all what were you doing in 2015 were you at uh, loblaws i wasn't yet i would be at loblaws the following year uh but i was just a a little bookish student (laughs) trying to act as a sponge and take in all the labor politics around me
0: yeah and you're
1: from around oshawa I'm from Ajax yeah from Ajax. I'm from Ajax and then I grew up in Whitby for a little bit so just sort of yeah just like a Durham transplant
0: I mean that whole that whole area is one of the uh you know cores of the Canadian economy the Mm -hmm. Ontario economy it's uh and it has been for ages yeah Uh, like the industry auto uh all the manufacturing and now increasingly uh part of the whole logistics hub of the greater Toronto area Absolutely. and like all the way around to Hamilton. Mm-hmm. That 401, the belt, right? We already have a belt. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you've, uh, you've spearheaded this project, uh, which you'd uh, uh, happily, I'm really happy you dragged me into it. <laughs> uh, this uh, two-part piece now up at Canadian Dimension called Groceries Long War. And this is kind of what I want to talk about is let's dig into the guts of like what came out in these two articles and what else we have been thinking and talking about. For sure, um, you like like me, uh, you have a whole you have a history working in grocery, so this is near and dear,
1: right? Yeah, it really is. Um, I worked at Loblaws um, in downtown Toronto at the Maple Leaf Gardens um, flagship for two years, from 2016 to 2018. So. From an activist perspective, um, there wasn't much really by way of like uh, shop floor action to point to during that period. It was a little uh, a little quiet, but that doesn't mean there weren't really big issues. And those issues really radicalized me. So as you remember, um, Loblaw was a central member in the corporate opposition to Ontario's move to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks. Yep. Um And I remember feeling like such a fool to be working there because their effort to beat down their employees was so concerted. Um, You know, in the break rooms, there would be copies of like National Post or or The Globe that the company had run op-eds in. And it would be about, you know, how minimum wage is going to be a job killer and that Loblaws is threatening layoffs if uh, the wage increase goes through. And these op-eds would be sort of pinned to the bulletin board or like spread out across the lunch tables in a really strategic way, like really like Mr. Burnsian type behavior. Um, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and and honestly, many workers, uh, many of my coworkers, believe that the minimum wage increase was actually against their interest, um, that it would uh, quote unquote hurt the people it was meant to help. So in effect, their campaign worked. Uh, and they had a lot of people, a lot of my coworkers scared their jobs were on the line. And that was really frustrating. Um, a few of us did try to sort of intervene in the conversation and try to like, uh, provide uh, a dissenting opinion, but it wasn't organized enough to really make a splash. I, I, I think we just sort of would throw at the newspapers when we saw them. Well, that's okay. If it's the national post. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And then there was, you know, the usual admixture of, like, cuts to hours and, like, management skullduggery, right? Like, uh, our contract was, like, infamously bad for part-timers, which included um, the pay scale based on hours worked. That makes it basically impossible to get a decent wage increase if you're part-time. We now know that that tactic has roots in the 1990s, which we'll we'll get to. Um, But that contract was so bad that it was, like, a meme to part-timers. It was this thing that hung over our head as, like, a... Don't even bother because the, the contract is just so bad.
0: That sounds like the contract I was operating under uh, at uh, Loeb, which became Metro in Ottawa, like in the early 2000s. It was that same
1: two tier. Right. Contract. Yep. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's like uh, part timers simultaneously. They have part timers working like 30, 36, 38 hours a week. So that gets them a little closer to a wage increase, according to the by hour model. But that also still their 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 misclassification as part time uh, excludes them from like benefits and better wages because of two tier contracts. So, the young worker experience, I guess, at Lablas was very diverse. Some, you know, some people worked many hours, some people not so much. Um, but there was a lot that could be agitated on. Um, really big issues that I don't think we took advantage of as the sort of organizing um, opportunity that's
0: that's interesting because my experience in really learning how to do job action uh, you know on the job action and uh it it was all around hours Uh, a lot of it was a lot of it was around and it ties into breaks of course it ties into wages so uh the the kind of nature of the shift uh i was fucking i was working Close to 40 hours. Our contract said that if you hit 40 hours, then you moved into the full-time category where your wages went up from like 50 cents over minimum wage into the mid-teens. And this was early 2000s. The minimum wage was like 6.85. dollars mm-hmm. That's when Harris had it frozen from 95 to 2004 or 2003 when the Liberals came in. And um, yeah, it, uh, it was really brutal. But we organized around that to uh, you know, fight for uh, break time, to fight for paid breaks, to uh, basically enforce some aspects of the contract. Right. Uh, and also to kind of bully the manager into getting rid of certain shifts, especially the seven hour and 45 minute shift, which was a regular shift designed to deny someone <laughs> their half hour unpaid lunch break. Mm-hmm. And to uh, basically screw you out of hitting that that eight hours, which in my case often meant tipping over into that full time exactly full-time pay.
1: yeah, yeah, and that I think that's a common occurrence uh across i would i would uh wager across the country that everyone has their story about being scheduled for like a seven hour forty five minute shift or working you know strategically under. You know, are sort of working strategically uh, at like 39 hours a week. Just sort of like this ridiculous, erroneous <laughs> scheduling tactic to deny people, you know, a decent wage or decent benefit coverage.
0: Yeah, it's real. It exists. It's, it's, management's got it down. Mm-hmm. Right? They know what they're doing. The reason we're talking is really because of the Dominion strike. And this thing went from August 22nd to only very recently in mid-November when workers voted to accept a contract, which is a whole issue Issue we'll get into. And, I mean, this strike is pretty significant, I would say. like, I, You even used the word historic in one of the articles, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's something to it because the pandemic now is almost a year old. And this is the first case of a large, what we might call... A, a large and long essential workers strike. If Absolutely. If you want to use that term. Yeah. I mean, there is the Alberta healthcare wildcat, and there's been all sorts of uh, work refusals and smaller strikes. But this was a province-wide strike against one of the major corporations in Canada, the one that dominates the the food industry, uh, the grocery industry, and and has uh, you know a front seat with whatever government. As in power, basically. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the I think the reason why I chose the word historic uh, was I guess there's a, a two pronged approach to it. It's a, a historic insofar that uh, it is the sort of first um, real sort of uh, grocery worker pushback against the what we are calling the grocery cartel. Yeah, um, that's what we're calling it. <laughs> that uh, you, hear, that you heard it here day. first. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's historic in another way too because it belongs to this sort of perfect storm of uh it's a it's a long uh, corporate or overture towards low wages job cuts and a long sort of arc uh towards imposing the reality that grocery stores started imposing in the in the late 80s and um so during the pandemic uh there were i think 60 full-time job cuts is that correct yep that's right um and that was paired with the cutting of pandemic pay. Um, the two dollars an hour. The that... two dollars an hour. Uh, yeah, very generous um, <laughs> little uh, crumbs that were kicked to the you know the workers that were propping up the entire uh, the entire country. And um, what's
0: so amazing is that the wages are so low that that two dollars does make. huge difference to the workers getting it
1: absolutely uh especially in newfoundland which was uh i think a thesis that was presented to explain why it was them and not say workers in ontario um where the pandemic pay was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back um the minimum wage is so low in newfoundland that it really made a big difference to have the extra two dollars yeah um and it went it really went the distance for workers and meant a lot to them. And so they weren't willing to just roll over when it was taken away. And, and the coordination of the major grocery corporations in introducing
0: the pandemic pay cut and then uh, rescinding it all at once. I mean, that
1: to me is it's right in your face cartel activity. Absolutely. That's what a- it is. A- absolutely. <laughs> definition no, Yes. Yes. There's no other way to look at it.
0: This strike is pretty pretty intense and it escalates. It's uh, involving 1,400 workers at 11 stores across the province and just in case anyone isn't 100% clear on it, uh, Dominion is a brand of the Loblaw company. It's this big sprawling empire. It has stores that are called Loblaws but it has many many other brands. Dominion is one of them. It's a large one on the East Coast. Uh, There's an escalation and This is where things get interesting because workers begin taking their picket lines to secondary locations that aren't the Dominion grocery stores themselves. Uh, How did how did that
1: all go down? Uh, Well, workers started, I think, the the first uh, escalation outside of the Dominion store specifically was a solidarity chain outside of No Frills. Um, That was a sort of early uh, indication that workers were thinking outside of just The dominion uh label uh and then it started spreading um into the mount pearl distribution center uh, as well as the weston bakery and i think you have some history on the weston bakery
0: yeah i mean the the obvious connection there is that galen weston jr is the uh you know heir to the fortune of the loblaws uh empire and Western Bakery is, of course, one of the um, subsidiaries of Loblaw's, and that's actually where the the whole family fortune originates, is with the Western Bakery in Toronto, in the late nineteenth century and into the early twentieth. And um, in in during this strike, I I was just looking up uh, some other history, and I stumbled across uh, the the Baker Strike of 1905-06 in Toronto, and there was George Weston right there involved in a union busting you know open shop offensive against the bakers union in Toronto about 15 or so years after his uh, industrial bakery got up and running in the 1890s so it's, you know, it's long, been a
1: 100 dollar or sorry a 100 the, year affair
0: yeah a, a long tradition of union busting mm-hmm. from the westons and so they hit the bakery and and then I mean that's exciting, because you know it's also a great symbol because that's the price fixing, bread price fixing scandal is happening right there, mm-hmm. uh, and also distribution centers. So th- this now we're talking actu- we're talking real disruption uh, across regions at this point.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Um, I think the what's really interesting about the distribution secondary pickets is that they are yeah they are really disruptive and um, I think uh, from a strategic standpoint these are some of the things that workers have to do to get the attention of corporate giants Um, it became I think pretty clear uh, early on that it was going to take more than picketing to get the attention of Loblaws because uh, the the business that's done in Newfoundland for Loblaw is a fraction of what it's done in other provinces. They really had to pull out the stops to um, deploy different tactics. And taking secondary pickets to um, distribution centers and to the bakery can really uh, cause a sting to the company.
0: So one of the secondary pickets was at the Ajax distribution center. And you did a little research into what happened there. Uh, Tell me about it.
1: Yeah, so I spoke to Shane Fields, who is um, the incoming president of Unifor Local 222, sort of historic uh, auto workers union in Oshawa. Um, And he is actually a former worker at the Lobos Distribution Center because he's now full time president. But he helped organize uh, one of the secondary pickets um, outside of Newfoundland in Ajax, Ontario, at um, the Lobos Distribution Center. Um, so the center employs like a 1,000 unionized workers, um, total staff, I think, about 1,300. Um, and what's interesting is that a lot of the workers are young uh, and they are working 24-7. The w- warehouse only shuts down on Christmas. Um, and I spoke to him sort of about why uh, why secondary picket. And he saw the reality for what it was, which was that Lovelace needs to be... Um, uh, needs to be shaken to its core to really take workers seriously. It, it's it got to take Sometimes it takes more than just picketing. It takes real coordinated uh, disruption um, so that was sort of where the Ajax um, action came out of and Its goal was really to just disrupt um, supply chains and the logistics to make it sort of the make business sting in Ontario where it's really felt,
0: the secondary pickets at the distribution center really raise the question of what kind of organization do you actually have on the shop shop floor to pull that sort of thing off, and I, we can talk about a bit of that later, um, especially around what these two-tier contracts actually do to the capacity of unions to organize and how mm-hmm. they're such a a kind of a weapon in the hands of the employer to suppress organization and unity in the store itself now when the grocery workers start pulling these secondary pickets then the cops show up Mm -hmm. so i mean this is a pretty interesting story because the cops show up but workers don't back down
1: so how does that all play out yeah so the the company was actually seeking as i remember it a blanket injunction to shut down all the secondary pickets but they didn't succeed in in getting that so the workers uh were i i believe it first occurs at the Weston bakery workers are uh participating in a secondary picket there Uh, and the cops show up and it is for all intents and purposes a completely legal strike Um, And no one really understands why the RNC has decided to just uh, show up. And I I think one of the the best quotes from that came from Sharon Walsh, who's a Unifor rep in Newfoundland, and she tweeted, quote unquote, this is public funds protecting billionaire assets against minimum wage workers, which I thought really nicely summed it up. Like overall, it's a really nice sort of case study of the role of the state in capitalist society, like the. The way the story's been told so far, it's like the RNC just volunteered their services and yeah, just no, showed up to break up. Yeah, without an injunction, showed up to just break up a strike.
0: Yeah, if they weren't there to break it up, there's certainly intimidation. And then the advice given by union officials to the pickets is to you know, avoid violence and go home. But mm-hmm. they don't do that. And I, I was under the impression, based on the news reports, that the workers uh, simply stayed on the picket lines, but they did more than that.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they marched over to the RNC uh, headquarters and they protested up front, which I think was uh, the best way to go about responding to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the way to do it. The mm-hmm. number of times that labor, in really recent memory, I mean, think of the Regina refinery lockout, uh, the number of times that workers are, you know, their actions are being suppressed, uh, broken up, by the police. Pretty common. Pretty common. Yeah, so totally. targeting police stations, hey, that's a legit legit protest and it has to happen. Shed Absolutely. some light on what's going on. So the RNC, their their kind of intervention there fails, but it that kind of does lead to mediation. I suppose in that sense it actually works.
1: Yeah. Um it yeah. It ups the profile of the strike a lot and there's a lot of anger on both sides. Um, which I think sort of does pave the way towards mediation.
0: Yeah. I mean, not to say that mediation was the solution, but uh, it's fairly clear that uh, the police uh, were used as a justification for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So the company comes out with a final offer, and it's immediately, uh, the union itself says right away that it's not
1: substantially different from the contract that they walked out on. Yep they're put but it's put to the members it is put to the members and on uh november 13th the result of the vote is released and everyone uh and to the dismay of a lot of the you know workers who were who wanted to keep fighting uh everyone found out that they were going back to work now they don't actually uh release the concrete numbers of who voted yes and who voted no just that yes, workers are going back to work. So So no
0: no percentages, no vote tally. Exactly. Just just, just acceptance. mm -hmm. You've accepted it.
1: You can see uh, that there's a sort of concerted um, holding back of information. All of the union communications get very tight. And it's just the strike is over. We're going back to work. That's that. And then you spoke to workers and what are they saying? about? And I spoke to. Yeah. So we spoke to some workers in Newfoundland who said they were they were definitely upset that they couldn't see the full um, and detailed results of the vote um, and felt that they have the right to see them. Um, And secondarily, uh, they were surprised that anyone would vote in favor of a contract that was not even remotely different from the one that they uh, they had before. Um, Instead, this time they got like gift cards uh, and some sort of meager, um, meager offerings from the company. But substantially speaking, it was not any different. Um, And they were quite shocked about that and shocked that after, you know, 12 weeks on the picket line that workers would vote in favor of it. It's taxable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, apparently per Canada Revenue Agency rules. Uh, any, like, sort of cash payment that's given to workers has to be treated as taxable income. And the gift cards are to Dominion stores. How do we get here? I mean, that's
0: really the second half of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, We'll take a little break, and then we'll come back with how the hell did grocery jobs end up being so bad? All right. See you soon. all right we're back from our little break now we're going to talk about the history what happened in the 80s and 90s to create this really uh, bad situation uh, bad set of contracts bad conditions in the grocery sector in Canada but first I want to just do a shout out to Scott Price who really helped out with this uh, this project with his uh, work In uh, Manitoba with UFCW local 832 and he's got all this amazing oral history of workers who went through all sorts of battles in the 70s and 80s including in the grocery sector and and we drew on one of his uh, projects around the 1987 Westfair strike which we will get to as as part of uh, this investigation into the history
1: we Uh, drew on it extensively Yes, in, in, in fact, it uh, may be pantom- or tantamount to intellectual dishonesty. <laughs> Scott is a total torch carrier in this department, and he's done so much like, important work that uh, I think is, is sort of fundamental to any understanding of, of uh, retail labor in Canada. So no, yeah, shout out, shout out Scott Price.
0: Before the 1980s and 1990s, uh, grocery jobs uh, were really different from
1: what they are now and uh dan what
0: what were they like?
1: So they were often characterized by uh, by these sort of basic premises of de- of decent work full-time jobs, decent hours, um, good wages, stuff that you can build a career out of um, but there's a lot of fogginess also we We don't have tons of information available about what those jobs were really like it was quite it's quite foggy
0: yeah, I mean there really isn't that uh extensive knowledge like other industries leading up into this point there are all sorts of uh case studies but there isn't really an overarching analysis of the industry uh in in the middle of the the big middle of the 20th century especially that post-war era the boom uh leading into the the austerity of the 80s and 90s and the employer's offensive there Uh, so we kind of know what existed mostly
1: based on looking at what was taken away in the, in these contract fights. Exactly. And we sort of, you, that, uh, that feeling is sort of captured in the oral histories that do exist. Um, that where, where people sort of live through, workers have lived through that transition from good jobs to bad. And I often, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you know,
0: And, and you know, it's a whole, uh, there's, there's a whole offensive going on. It's not just the grocery industry. And I, I think that, that, that's like key to, I think that's key to, understanding what's actually happening in grocery because there really is um an offensive uh, against the unions that are allied to the sector Mm -hmm. Uh, there's an offensive against trucking uh and the teamsters and really in the late 70s with with the uh repeal of certain regulations the teamsters start getting annihilated this is under the carter democrats in the late 70s so the the power of unions over the trucking industry begins to collapse. There's, of course, the wider attacks on steel and auto, but there's also attacks uh, in meat packing, which is uh, really linked into the grocery corporations as well. Uh, there's real concessions uh, and, and defeats made by UFCW there's the you know the big gainer strike in Edmonton in 86 there's the the, uh, the big strike in Austin Minnesota uh, that same time which is caught in the uh, pretty amazing documentary American Dream and these offensives are happening at the same time as the grocery stores start to prepare their strategy and you know they're they're paving the way for the big corporations to hammer these same unions, like UFCW, in the grocery sector. And, Absolutely. And we, you, you started this story off with the 1987 Westfair strike, which, um, which is kind of a, a, a case study of how these two-tier contracts start to be pressed on workers. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what's going on at Westfair in '87?
1: Well, Westfair is sort of this flashpoint in in retail labor history um it's actually scott price who observes that it's it was about imposing a fundamentally new model of retail um and sort of disrupting that bedrock uh which was overhead costs so overhead costs of course mean like human lives and and people's wages and benefits and stuff like that Um, so Westfair was sort of this, uh, early example of the model being imposed. So it was about cutting full-time jobs. It was about imposing a two-tier wage structure, um, to divide part-time workers from full-time workers. And those were sort of the, um, uh, the flashpoints, the, the early tactics that employers would later use en masse to reformulate the entire industry. And it's a pretty militant strike.
0: Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, clashes and conflict. It demonstrated that the workers themselves uh, were not uh, willing to put up with what the employers were were trying to press on them. So the Westfair strike is really uh, sets the stage for a series of other attacks and. One of these attacks is a contract signed by UFCW and Loblaws in Ontario in 1990. And there isn't even a strike or a lockout that happens, but this contract, this deal uh, that's accepted, really sets the stage for what comes next. Yeah. What does it look
1: like? It is a. The 1990 contract between the UFCW and Loblaw is uh, tremendously important for understanding. Um, the history that is to come and the the, uh, the grocery sector that we have today. So the UFCW bargained away wage increases every six months um, in favor of wage progression based on hours worked. So that's a, a key distinction, and it meant a lot of uh, a, a way worse wage progression for workers. Um, the labor researcher Jan Kaner uh, wrote that it was... Um, It essentially altered the wage structure in food retail uh, in a permanent way and was sort of a corporate proof of concept uh, that it could work on a a large scale. And, And in general, that's the system that we have today. What's amazing about this
0: is that the union doesn't really look to its membership to fight back at what the company is bringing in. And it's it's a prime example of the pervasive practice of what we call business unionism in the grocery sector where the membership involvement is minimized in favor of uh, these kind of cozy collaborative relationship with the employer which is always premised on the idea that the employer themselves wants labor peace and in this case i mean Loblaws is going for the jugular, and the union accepts it. That's and, that's and right. Yeah, doesn't mo- doesn't take the the membership out on strike against this huge concession.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think I think part of it is that uh, companies like Loblaws, uh, given the sort of um, uh, turn towards hyper competitiveness in the '80s and '90s. Um, companies like Loblaw and Safeway all sort of make pleas to the unions that, got, that, that represent their workers that it's time for cuts to be made. Sacrifices have to be made. We have to stay competitive. And these are, this is the sort of premise, the basic premise, that unions end up accepting. And the uh, corollary of that is that we get things like two-tier wage structures um, as the sort of sacrificial lamb on the part of the union and uh they don't lean on the membership to fight back it's sort of uh, an elite broker deal and that's that and the world is forever changed because of it
0: yeah absolutely and the 1990 contract sets the stage for a whole series of attacks from other companies and now the ball is really rolling in the direction of achieving two-tier contracts of pushing out the older full-timer workers minimizing their numbers through attrition and buyouts and expanding this part-time, low-wage workforce. And one of the real key battles that showed that workers did want to fight was in Ontario uh, in 1993, it was the Miracle Food Mart strike. It was 63 stores. It was 6,500 workers. It was really... uh, A Titanic battle between the workers and the company I believe it was 14 weeks long so that's two weeks longer than the uh, Dominion strike that just ended Uh, but this is again
1: one of those uh, real uh,
0: setbacks right
1: yeah and at the time uh, the Miracle Food Mart strike was one of the longest uh, retail actions um, in Canadian labor history Um, And as you say, the Dominion strike actually comes quite close um, to beating it out. Uh, But yeah, so the the um, the MFM strike is really uh, indicative of the time. Um, It's a disastrous, uh, a disastrous strike. The the outcome is awful. Um, There's full blown concession bargaining on the part of the union. They get they face wage cuts. Buyouts for workers, which kill seniority, they eliminate full-time jobs. Um, it has a uniquely bad impact on women who uh, face the worst of the job cuts. It's really just like a, a, a really dark period, and um... yeah, it's really bad. There's
0: there's I mean, speaking of a dark period, there's this quote that we found in the Toronto Star coverage of the strike at the time where uh, one worker, Patty Noble from Georgetown, Ontario, says, I can't afford to be out on strike, but I can't afford to take a wage cut either. So there's that uh, that corner that workers have been backed into. Uh, these low-wage workers uh, really can't be you know, taking even less money and losing work, but the wage cut's going to really push them uh, over the edge as well. So... I mean, that, that kind of gives a sense of some of the, where the militancy and the willingness of workers to fight is. But again, trapped within this business union approach.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And really coming out of this stuff, you see how there's a structuring of unequal pay for the same kind of work. And you once you start having people, a category of people working part-time hours for a lower wage rate, and, and then you, you have a dwindling number of full-time workers working at a higher pay rate, even though they may be doing the exact same work, like working a cash register, stocking shelves, unloading a truck, you know, working in the deli or meat or produce, whatever it is. And in doing so, you start to see how... Uh, men are being paid more than women for the same amount of work and it starts to structure itself into society as a whole much more Absolutely. deeply than it already is mm-hmm. it's racialized as well there there's you know certain departments in grocery stores uh, that have traditionally be done have traditionally been done by men and tr- some have been traditionally done by women there's also a racial element to that as well in different stores where employers will hire people to uh, deal with the customer because they're white where they put a bunch of people of color in the back and that is uh, a kind of a capitalist racism and sexism that uh, expands again through the two-tier structure uh, that's imposed on workers by these corporations and yeah, you know this is this is one of those lessons that really came out of uh, the, the fight for the $15 minimum wage here in Ontario was the the extent of the inequality, in ramping up, uh, you know, structural racism and and sexism in society. Absolutely. So by the the later nineties and into the two thousands, I mean I got my job in grocery in uh, early two thousand and one. Worked there for a few years. That was a union job. That's where I got uh, my labor, my labor activism bug, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and my interest in the whole subject. Uh, I was part of a union. I was part of what would now be Unifor Local 414, and yeah, we had that two-tier wage structure, and I recall at the time, and also you see it in some of the battles that were happening in this period, was there was an animosity between young people and older people, between students and non-students, so a lot of people who were filling these jobs uh, were often younger, they could be students, they were often often more racialized more women uh working these jobs and it created all sorts of divisions within the workplace that the employer for a period of time really played pretty well against uh playing workers against each other that's kind of disappeared and you and i have observed how some of the prejudices of 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 the workplace are dissolving as the expansion of these shitty uh jobs uh, Colonize all jobs within within the sector. Everybody is now in the same Shitty boat essentially.
1: Yeah, that's it's actually a really good way of putting it. I I would say that I mean during anecdotally speaking During my time there there was a pretty sincere hostility among part-time workers towards the full-time workers But everyone knew I think intuitively That everyone was in the same sinking boat, which is that everyone is suffering at the hand of um, a sort of like downward mobilization of standards shitty wages job cuts hour cuts the, everyone ends up suffering and I think out of that can come a new solidarity um, and to me uh, from where I stand that's the only way that grocery unions are going to get anything done at the expense of the employer is by building out the sort of connection between students young workers racialized workers women and the sort of older guard of full time workers who are largely men um, and are often women, too, but are, you know, largely um, in uh, it's a largely a gendered phenomenon.
0: This this aspect of it, this is one of the things that actually comes out of the Dominion strike is that the workers are telling us that this sol- this solidarity existed. It was there. The students were out. Young people were out. There's no more excuse uh, around, you know, young people don't want to be engaged.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, it's And it was amazing to see that in the Dominion strike. Like, one of the workers I we talked to, uh, Brittany, said that the, a huge portion of the striking workers, uh, at least at her store, were actually students and young people. Um, and that their, di- their, their experience was quite diverse. She said that a lot of them had second jobs. Uh, a lot of them, you know, treated uh, their Dominion job as their part-time job while in school. But that a lot of them also had, like, The classic thirty-eight hour week, so they were also like you know erroneously misclassified, Um, and their participation is evidence of something really important I think, which is a a successful agitation of young people, um, which is so crucial to the survival of grocery unions as as a whole, but also for like building on what we have and and pushing forward. It's an area for young people to. And not just enter the
0: workforce, but to enter organized labor because it has grocery stores still have that relatively high union density compared to other private sector retail. Like, if, yeah, you, if you go to the exactly. mall, who's unionized there? Mm-hmm. Probably no one. But if you go to a grocery store, you know, there's a really good chance it's a union shop.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's uh, been a consistent phenomenon throughout history that workers uh, in grocery experience high levels of union membership. It's really rare to find that outside of uh, outside of that. So it really is uh, uh, ripe for uh, opportunity for the labor movement. It's very exciting. One of the things I think is really
0: amazing about uh, the potential here that the Dominion workers showed as well is the expansion of activity from the grocery store beyond to the supply chains to distribution, you know, subsidiary uh, companies like, you know, the bakeries uh, and hitting up these pressure points along the supply chain from all the different production value added to retail distribution, all of it. And, you know, once you start hitting those pressure points of these big companies, then you're actually starting to wield some power against them yeah absolutely. that's that's where you're going to get the leverage to begin moving these companies and opening up possibilities uh so the the centrality of that and of course by nature it has to be a disruptive power it has to be disrupting the the product
1: flows and the money flows for that company absolutely and i think um it's uh there's a tension there in some ways too because uh the secondary pickets are often illegal and the that sort of leads to an internal strategic arithmetic within unions to figure out what's worth it and what's not um, and some will argue that it's it's not worth the cost because it will come with lawsuits but I I think a really good quote came from another worker we talked to Shannon who said I think we should have stayed on the picket lines uh, the secondary picket lines but we were told we couldn't keep going to court for injunction injunctions. And so I asked her, I was like, well, what would you say that to someone who says, like, they're too expensive? We can't, you know, we can't afford any more court cases. And she said, we pay enough in union dues for those costs and many more. And I thought that was a pretty obvious answer. It's like, why not make it happen? Yeah. Take I mean, those we, risks.
0: Yeah. The union can wage those legal fights. They have the resources to do it. Certainly in it, with the big unions in grocery, UFCW, Unifor. Yeah, absolutely. And, but you're right, there is an arithmetic that that is happening before the activity happens. It's restraining activity before, you know, in the uh, development stages where you say, okay, if we do the secondary picket, then the possibility of arrests and an injunction arrive. And do we want to do that? Is that... I think the calculation that's happening is is not one of what's going to win necessarily or what possibly gives us more leverage. Uh, there's a reticence to be doing these things based on some, you know, it could be a PR view of things like how is it going to make the union look in the press yep. or something like that. Some other calculation that isn't based on uh, what are the pressure points, who do we need to organize and mobilize to hit those pressure points. And usually what that means is if you're asking those questions in the middle of the strike, there's actually been no planning to do it beforehand. Yep. And yep. that's a huge problem. So the, so it's easy to, to take the, the cautionary approach when you're in the middle of the strike and the situation lands on your lap. Uh, you know, you want to back off maybe from getting tied up in the courts, getting the police involved. Uh, setting bad examples or or bad precedents for further action. uh, And what that really means is you just haven't planned for it. There's been no forethought into what those things might do and how we might navigate uh, the the backlash and and the the traps that we might fall into. How do we get around those?
1: Uh,
0: (laughs) Otherwise... You know, you're guaranteed to lose if you think you can't beat them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was a that was a critique that we were hearing among workers too. Is that there was no there was no forethought. There was there was very little planning and um, sort of steps laid out to escalate and then take it somewhere else, not just escalate and fall by the wayside and bail. Um, and I think I don't know. Yeah, it's it's uh, there is a tension there, and you have to sort of. Uh, ask yourself some tough questions about what's worth it or not. But in the same sense, it's like the the cost of going to court is high, but so is the cost of losing the battle. Um, and I think that was sort of the, the sentiment that was ringing through a lot of workers' minds. And maybe this is where we can end it on, is that all of these questions are raised
0: because of what the Dominion grocery workers did. They walked out, they went on strike, they fought the company, tooth and nail. And we wouldn't be able to pose these questions or begin to think about how the strike went, how other strikes went, and and how we can actually move forward and roll back these concessions, try to break two-tier contracts, Try try to break out of it, and begin to move up those wages and benefits and hours and conditions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not just hanging on to what we have, but striking a better deal so really all of this is made possible
0: because workers are actually taking action and we can begin to understand the dynamics in the industry and uh you know what workers are telling us and uh what workers are doing and and the kind of tactics and actions they're showing are possible and where labor activists in the rest of the country whether you're you know just on the shop floor you don't have a job uh, you're between jobs or you know you might be a union official or staffer uh, it really showed that workers are up for a fight and that there needs to be a more methodical long-term approach to how we're actually going to turn this around in this sector
1: uh, which is why it's groceries long war absolutely well said I can't I can't add anything under that that was a perfect send-off <laughs> all right cool man